Good to see you all today. Is there a, is there one more slide that we can bump over there? There we are. Um, there is, I don't know if you guys feel it, I, the way I feel today, uh, is there's kind of like a gentle, uh, uh, our gathering feels very gentle today. Uh, it, very, it feels very um, uh, quiet, not in a bad way, but in kind of like a reflective, I don't know how to describe it. I don't really want to put words to it, but um, it kind of, uh, as we were singing, um, the feelings that I had, um, and not because I'm preaching on this, but it made me think of um, sometimes the, wor- uh, the lack of words that we have when um, we get low enough to look at the lamb uh, in, its, in its eyes, um, to kind of behold uh, the Lord in his temple, uh, to see his strength and his glory, um, and to be kind of caught in the wonder of that. Um, that will be for mainly the end of the sermon, but uh, seeing as the Lord is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it's fine that I uh, begin this way. Um, we are... Um, actually, I forgot to greet you. St. <laughs> Clair, the Lord be with you. Thank you. We are in um, a series right now, our Lenten series, this is the second week, um, and we are talking about themes of, um, we are talking about themes uh, that circle around the wilderness and what it means to long uh, for God, to yearn for God. Um, the wilderness is a big theme in Scripture, uh, and it first kind of makes its big appearance when the living God comes down, hears Israel crying in Egypt, weeping out of the oppression of slavery, out of captivity, and makes this grand movement to sweep into Egypt, show that the gods of Egypt and the strength of Egypt are nothing compared to God's power, and to draw Israel out into the wilderness to serve him. Um, in the wilderness, we've, uh, Dave said last week that we, come, we see who we are, we realize who we are in the wilderness and what we love. I want to change that a bit um, to say something along the lines of, in the wilderness, we, come to re- we realize what we've come to be and what we've come to love. For Israel, when God came down and drew them out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt into the wilderness, um, it quickly became apparent that though God made this great movement to rescue them from the slavery that they were in, their faithfulness to God became contested very quickly. Um, there was this tension for Israel to either move back to captivity, to, to long for Egypt, or to long for a life that was 
separate or in control, uh, of, in self-control, basically. In autonomy, a big, a big word, but it, it basically means to be the ruler of your life, to, to make the rule of your life. Israel had this desire to either move back to captivity, where it was safe. In, in many passages, we hear Israel come to Moses and complain, why were we brought out to this wilderness? There's no water. At least we had water in Egypt. Um, in a, a wild passage in Numbers, Israel says, we remember how much free fish we ate. The cucumbers and the melons and the garlic and the leeks we had in Egypt. Free. Israel, your food came at the cost of your life. You were brutally enslaved. Um, and so you see this, this um, uh, motif of Israel longing to go back to Egypt. On the other hand, you have this desire for Israel to be the ruler of itself and to move away from God's faithfulness in that direction. The, the classic one is um, Israel forming the golden calf. The presence and the relationship of the living God to Israel was so strong, uh, so kind of um, real, too real at times, that it is safer to build a calf and to worship and say, this is, this is our God, this is the one who brought us out of Egypt, than to live life with the living God. Um, so, right, there's this tension between moving back to captivity and straying towards idolatry. Today, we're going to focus a little bit about what it looks like when a community and people stray toward idolatry. Idolatry, and we'll get into it, is simply loving something in the place of God. We'll see, we'll ask questions of what that actually does to the community, what that does to the worshiper, what that makes the worshiper become and come to love in contrast to what we were meant to be. I'll spend a little time in idolatry, in particularly our relationship to our modern technology today, but I only want to, I only want to stay there a bit. I don't want to spend too much time there. I want to go in the end to Paul and ultimately to the Lamb and ask questions of what it means to be created in the image of God. This movement between captivity and idolatry is ultimately about who we are, um, who we were made to be, and who we were made to love. This is about the image of God. And in Genesis, um, we, we come to, in the creation poem of Genesis, we see that humanity was created in the image and likeness of God. An image of God in ancient Near Eastern language is essentially a, cult, a cultic hub, call it that. What it means is a community and um, the world around a community relates to God by relating to its image. Often it's a graven image or a, um, a, like a little effigy. Um, but this creation poem in Genesis tells us that, in fact, humanity is the image of God. If you want to know what God looks like, then you look at a human. 
you turn to those your left and right, you see something of what it means, uh, or of what the living God is and who the living God is. Um, Genesis is this, uh, the start of Genesis is this poem, and if you read it uh, carefully, you start to get the sense that God is a relational God. I think that's why Israel called uh, Adonai Elohim, uh, the Lord God, the living God, the one who is alive. Um, because, for instance, God's, you know, um, calls out to the water, let the water team with living creatures. And then what happens? The water teams with living creatures. Or calls out to the land, let the land bring forth, and the land brings forth. Um, there's this wonderful give and take between the living God and the creation in, in the act of creation. Um, and when we... So if God is a relational God and being created in the image of God means to be relational, or, or I am arguing that it means to be relational, it's been a contested thing throughout the ages, but I think one of the greatest ways we can understand what it means to be created in God's image is to understand how deep um, our ties uh, to each other can be and how deep our ties to uh, the land uh, that we walk on can be. Um, throughout, and, and in ways today, I'm, I'm reading, pa- we're, gonna re- we're reading passages of scripture, and then at a moment, in the same moment, we're zooming out to say, what does this passage mean in the grand text, uh, in, the, in, the, in the large narrative? When, when I look at God as a relational God, and bearing God's image as being about relationship, if we look at the whole narrative, what is the disposition of this relationship? What, what characterizes this relationship? Um, and one way to describe it, um, I think, is this relationship is authentic. It's genuine. Um, to use a fancy word, uh, it's it's pathetic. Not pathetic in the sense of you're pathetic, you're lowly, but pathetic in the sense of it is capable of suffering. We know the word apathetic, right? Apathetic is the the absence of pathos, the ability to suffer, the ability to be experienced, uh, to experience. So our relationship is our relationships to one another have this great capacity to experience one another, to suffer for one another, to love one another. Um, And that is because God is, that's how God relates to the world. God is not distant um, and removed, but we see through the scriptures that there there are ways in which the world acts that affect God that make God suffer, which is something we don't think about very often. But if you read the scriptures, it's very true. God is affected by the world, and particularly by Israel, Israel's faithfulness and Israel's disobedience. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to say there, but I, I forget. Um, so, so to go back to this idea of Israel in the wilderness, asking the question of what 
they've become and what they were meant to be. Um, it's ultimately about how do we, as a people, as a community, reflect the image of God. We've been given this call to bear God's image. How does one do that faithfully? How does one actually look like the living God? And I think it has a lot to do with this ability to be in authentic relationship to one another. Question is, how do we do that in a way that is proper or that is right to our creatureliness, right? Our in-placeness. We, we are all right now in the Germania Club on King Street um, in Hamilton in Ontario, right? We're here. Um, and so in place, as that cultic image was supposed to do, how do we represent God and, and actually live out the image of God? So let's, <laughs> let's, let's try and bring this together here. Focus it. There was something I wanted to read here. A theologian named um, Terence Fretheim, talking about the pathos of God, talking about God's ability to, um, to give God's self up to the creation, um, writes this. Any commitment or promise within a relationship entails a limitation of freedom. By such actions, and I've bracketed in here, first and foremost, creating the world. That first moment of saying, let there be. For God to do that, God has decisively limited God's options. God's freedom is now in the creation most supremely a freedom for the world, not from it. In the utterance of let there be, God has forever said, forever, if this creation is to continue to exist, I will be right beside it, through thick and thin. How in the world do we image that? That's important. We'll get to there. But we're talking about um, idolatry right now when we put a something, when we love something above the living God. And what happens in that, um, in that interaction? I think there are two things that occur when we put something, when we love something above the relational outstretch, the out relational invitation of the living God. Our call or our office as image bearers, what we were made to do is abandon for autonomy, for self-love, for our own desire to be, I'll just use, um, you do you. We all know that. We all know that saying. That sounds idolatrous to me. Um, it sounds like it's okay to do whatever you want to do and you um, ultimately make the rule for your life. 
Um, and the covenant or the promise, we always use this language here at St. Clair, but the promise um, that we would bear God's image and that relationship, that connection between the living God and the image bearer for the sake of the world is severed. In our desire for autonomy, that relationship with God is in a very real way frustrated, in a very tangible way um, cut, cut off. And what we see in Scripture and what we see when we watch a community worship an idol is we see that a community begins, and I'm just going to use um, words that I've kind of thought about. A, a community begins to dull. Um, um, sorry, I've missed my place here. Right, a, a community begins uh, to dull, to become senseless. Not senseless in up here, but like a, an inability to feel each other to sense each other, and uh, a community starts to become faithless or an, uh, starts to lose the capacity for fidelity. Exodus 33 is uh, where we find Israel forming uh, um, a golden calf. There's this, there's this thing that happens when a community worships an idol and, and that they become like that idol. You become what you worship. You are what you eat and you are what you worship. Because as we said, or, or, or as I'm trying to say, is that being created in the image of God is not something static, but it's dynamic. We can become more like God or we can become less like God. And it's a movement of the heart. Um, there is this interesting thing that happens um, in the narrative as Israel is worshiping the calf um, that um, the narrative goes on to, to start to describe Israel in these very subtle ways like a calf, like a disobedient calf. Um, from 33 to 36, these chapters, you start to have these little little allusions uh, to Israel being stiff-necked. Um, they wouldn't listen. They were let loose by Aaron. Aaron is the priest uh, in charge of the people when Moses goes up to meet God on the mountain. Aaron lets them loose, and they turn aside from the way so that they needed to be gathered again at the gate, at the gate uh, of the camp, so that Moses could lead them where they needed to be. Um, it's subtle, but there's this feeling that what is happening in Israel is that they're becoming like the thing they worship, which is not what they were meant to be. They were meant to be the image of God. Um, Maybe if you're not convinced by that one, we could go to the Psalms, which in Psalm 115 is an excellent example of what it looks like when a community worships um, something that isn't God. 
and this is, this is also in the prophetic literature, but the psalm says uh, the idols of the nation, or if Israel was being honest also, <laughs> the idols within their own lives, um, they're silver and gold. They're the work of human. They're human handiwork. The psalmist says they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but don't feel. They have feet, but don't walk. And there is not breath or sound in their throats. All who make them are like them, as are all who trust them. Very profound. What it means. Is that working? Good. Oh, uh, I'll. You know what? I'll just let's just stick. Let's with just stick with them. Yeah. yeah, that sounds good. Um, what it means is a community is a community is formed by the idol that it worships. Simply put, and if we are created with this great capacity to relate to one another, uh, an idol makes us as a you know. Makes us mute, makes us deaf, makes us blind, makes us can't feel anymore. Um, not in the image of God. The when when Matt and Dave and, and Will and I were discussing what we were going to preach on this month. They were saying, well, you're obviously going to teach on modern technology. This is what I did my master's on, by the way. And I thought, mm, I don't want to do that. <laughs> can, I get some, can I get a different topic, please? Um, because I, uh, and all my, you know, my loved ones, my dear friends have heard me preach this sermon a hundred million times. So, But um, we have this sense that our relationship to our modern technology is doing this. Um, it doesn't have to do this, uh, but there is a way in which when we relate to things like our phones, um, though they promise great connectivity, we're losing this ability to sit in front of each other and look each other in the eyes. We're losing this ability to sit and listen to one another. Um, and like I said, it, it's not, it's not always, it's not always that we have this, uh, idolatrous or numbing relationship to the things in our pockets. Um, but it also, I mean, it goes way beyond it, The phone is just a little, uh, is like a, is like the flower of this thing. You, you go into things like how we get around the city, our modern transportation, right? Um, the automobile means self-mobile, right? Autonomous is right in the word of an automobile. Um, it gets us around places quick, um, but are we ever isolated from 
we're certainly isolating and we're going from where we start to where we want. We're going from A to B without any interaction. Busing may be a bit better because you're, you're, you know, driven all around the neighborhoods that you don't really need to go to, but you, you know, you're brought there. Um, and walking, well, you, you can be interrupted by f- 10 people as you walk from your work, uh, uh, as you walk home from home to work. So, I mean, I could, there are many examples. I don't want, I don't want to do that right now. I want us to have an imagination for what we were meant to, meant to be. Thank you. I think so too. An, an idol is isolated or isolated because nothing is isolated in the world. Um, and anything that worships the idol becomes isolated as well. It's, it's scary because it's a, it's a self-inflicted captivity in a way. Israel had this desire to go back to captivity. That was a captivity that others were placing upon them. But you see this kind of trend throughout Scripture is when a community worships an idol something that is not the living God, something that is not faith, uh, yeah, something that is not living, dynamic, the thing, um, we return to our own captivity. Um, this first, this pathos, this ability to suffer, to be experienced by one another is dampered. Um, and then the sense of knowing and being known in relationship is slowly extinguished until you become what you look like. This all matters because this is what we were created to be. Um, to be in intimate relationship with the living God and then to reflect that intimacy out into the world as far as we possibly can um, as creatures, as limited. Um, There is this word in the Greek, and it shows up. I'm going to go to a text in Paul, but it shows up a lot. Um, uh, Splankton is the Greek word for this word that we really can't translate into Greek, which means sympathy or tender mercies or the entrails, the guts. Um, the, the deep places of where our emotions come from. We see in the gospel something like the gospel writer says, and Jesus was moved in his inmost places um, in his dialogues with the Pharisees. The Pharisees um, have this, they have kind of like, well, he, he, his arguments with the Pharisees cause him to be moved with Sympathy, and out of that, he heals. Um, we see that uh, in, in Philippians, where we're going to go read from, Paul is in, kept in, in slavery, and, sorry, in jail, in prison, and he's longing with the tender mercies, with the sympathy, with the tender mercies of Christ for this community. Um, I've, I mean, I've beat this, I've done this analogy 
or this, I don't know, it's not an analogy, but I've said this many times with people, but um, there will be a point in your life uh, where you are sitting at the deathbed of someone you love very dearly. And um, in that moment, you will be mo- you will be so moved um, that you will have this you there will be a place for this image bearing to just flourish as you sit hold the face of your loved one and say i'm here i'm here i'll see you soon i'm here and this this i feel like this is this is the capacity at full tilt uh, of the image bearer being with one another embodied, holding each other, seeing each other, listening to each other. The early church came to see uh, that Jesus Christ was the one to fully embody what it meant to image God, to be faithful to that. Um, And by Jesus' faithful obedience to that image bearing, that faithfully listening, um, and hearing the living God. Um, It's by that faithful obedience that Jesus makes known in perfection that God is is alive and God has this capacity for love um, and steadfastness that is beyond our understanding. The treasures of the Gospels... uh, or the the gospels that the church treasured tell us of the Christ who became human, found us, dwelt among us. In John, literally set his tent up among us and coaxed us out of our own isolation. That is good news. Um, In a world where we just have this unbelievable tendency to desire self-rule. Not knowing that that self-rule will end us in such a frightening, apathetic isolation. Christ finds us in that. Um, By love, his steadfast love for the Father and for us, which is two sides of the same coin. Christ invites us to become what we were always meant to be. Christ's faith invites us to faith. And we see in the writings of Paul um, and in the early church, a church trying to articulate what it means to be swept up in Christ, to no longer be ourselves, but belong to one another and to give ourselves for one another. You can turn, if you have a Bible with you, um, you can turn to Philippians. Um, and you can turn to chapter 2. And we're going to go through just 11 verses. The first 11 verses in chapter 2. Context here is Paul's writing from prison. It's probably likely the end of his ministry, near the end of it. Um, and he's longing for the church that he writes to. It's a beautiful letter. If I think if you have a lot of baggage um, with the church, 
and I think we all do in ways, we carry things along with us. Um, this is an encouraging letter. Um, it's a powerful letter. It's a letter um, that speaks deeply uh, and profoundly to our capacity to love one another as Christ loved us. Paul's caught between two tensions. He's caught between a faction in the church that is preaching uh, Christ out of a good will and a good heart and preaching Christ, uh, what he says, out of selfish ambition to try and add to his afflictions in prison. And Paul says this incredible thing that I don't know if I've heard in the church is he says, well, whichever way Christ is proclaimed, Christ is preached, that's good. That's good with me, as long as Christ is proclaimed, which is an incredible demonstration of the lowering um, of God, of how the church is called to lower itself. Well, you know, that's, that's in, utterly incredible. He's also caught between the desire to live and to die. Christ is probably, I mean, Paul has probably uh, gone through some stuff uh, at this point in his life. And there's this longing for him in prison to be like, I'm okay. Um, I'm, I've, done a good, <laughs> I've done a good thing. I want to be with Christ now. And it would be great if I could leave and be with Christ. Um, but he also has this longing for this church and the church's faith and the growing up of this church. And he says, I know it's more necessary to be with you. So I'm sure by your prayers and by the, by the outworking of the Holy Spirit, I'll be back with you. And we'll continue together. I think that's pretty incredible. And just another example of Paul lowers himself, lowers himself to be with the church again and to embody this image bearing. Philippians chapter two goes like this. Because of, and in light of all the things that Paul has written to the church, he says, so then if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there's any fellowship in the Holy Spirit, if there is any sympathy and compassion, then make my joy complete. Have the same outlook and hold to the same love. Be one in one outlook. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain glory, but in humility Consider others more important than yourselves. Don't look out to your own interests, but look out to the interests of others. Have the same outlook in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped at. But he emptied himself and took the form of a slave he was found in human form, or he was born in human form and found in human appearance. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. That is, he humbled himself and became faithful. That is, he humbled himself and listened to the living God, to the point of death. Even death on a cross is for this reason that God also highly exalted him and gave to him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend 
every knee in the heavens and upon the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. We see Paul encouraging the church to be among themselves what they were always meant to be. I think he's doing this because he's realizing that bearing the image of God, the contest of that, the struggle of that, is, is the strongest, is the hardest, um, but also the most fruitful among each other. Faithfulness, as I've said before, is no further away than the person standing right before you. So as we go about our lives in the deluge of modern technology, in the the flood of it, um, remember that your capacity as image bearers is right before your face. Your capacity is in your eyes to see one another, your ears to hear one another, your mouth to speak goodness of one another, your hands to hold each other. And this is the glory of God. Bearing God's image means to bear his glory. Not vain glory, not empty glory, but the glory of giving oneself up for the other. Yeah. In Revelations John is the apocalypse of John, meaning the revealing of John, uh, that he sees this, uh, in the fifth chapter, he sees this, um, he's brought to the, the throne room of God. And in a double take moment, he says, and then I saw, there's these circles, in, according to John, there's these circles that surround the throne room of God, as if the whole universe um, is getting closer and closer to what is happening in the throne at the very center. And at the very center, just like the psalmist says, I beheld your glory. In the t- I beheld you in your temple. I saw your strength in your glory. And John says, in the midst of these 24 elders, in the midst of these angelic creatures, and indeed in the midst of the very throne, stood a lamb standing, a young lamb, a young lamb standing as one slain. That's the glory of God. That's the power of God. This is what Paul is calling his church to be. Uh, Calling this small church, not his church, Christ's church. Then we can say with Paul, your faithfulness is better than life. It's because of this that my lips will praise you. It's because of this that my life will bless you. In a frightening way, too, it's because of this that in your name I'll lift up my palms. Of course, lifting up our palms in worship uh, is worship and crucifixion is the same form. Cool. I'm going to call Miranda up. We're going to break bread together. We're going to worship.
then we're going to go on.